0: Good morning, my name is Andrew Schwartz and over the next uh, several weeks, we are going to be exploring the history of the New Testament Christian Church. And before we begin this class, I want to let you know how uh, each week will generally go. Uh, So my preference is that we begin each uh, study that we uh, conduct. Uh, with both an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. So uh, to begin this class, we'll start off with the Old Testament reading of Psalm 11 1 through3, and our New Testament reading, which is Romans 8:28. Our Old Testament reading reads as follows: "In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And our New Testament reading again from Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The other thing that I would like to uh, do every week uh, as we go through this course is to make a series of propositions, usually two. Uh, that way you can have a better idea of what the theme uh, or what I aim to uh, demonstrate in each week is. So in this case, we will have uh, two propositions. Uh, but before before we go to those propositions, I want to uh, introduce this title of the series Uh, Again, it's Foundations, a History of the New Testament Christian Church. And I want to clarify that while we will be focusing throughout these lessons on a view of the New Testament events from an historical perspective, uh, we can never ignore the theological perspective. Additionally, while our center of study is on the New Testament, we can't necessarily start there without laying a few ground rules, and a little bit of context. Uh, But back to those uh, two propositions. And these uh, propositions are are general that should cover uh, the entire theme of the entire course. And these two propositions are as follows. The first is simply that God exists. The second, uh, which we will explore more thoroughly throughout this course, is that the Bible is a basically reliable historical document. In other words, at its base or at its root, it can be trusted as a source of truth. That's what we will be aiming to show throughout the remainder of this course. Now, the most challenging task for a historian, in my opinion, is deciding on a starting point. Uh, One feels the weight of cause and effect when viewing the drama of the past, and this weight becomes even more burdensome the more one learns about the effects and the causes. Uh, We know uh, one event is necessarily preceded by another, Uh, that preceding event is necessarily in itself preceded by another, and so on. And all of those events are important, so it's difficult to come up with a starting point uh, that makes sense for the overall theme of the topic at hand. History becomes at greater depths increasingly complex and uh, the best historians are left with at best uh, little more than splendid suspicions of our ancestors' reality. Uh, It's tempting and it's easy to think that as modern historians or as uh, just modern people, uh, that we have more access to knowledge of historical events than the historical actors themselves. But I'd like to mention that even though we can see with a wider lens what actually happened, in other words, we have a wider perspective of uh, comparative events, of what happened in one place compared to what happened in another place, Um, In many cases, we're left to guess what fundamental motives led to those events. Uh, We ask the question, or we're unable to answer the question, uh, what the mindset was of the actors in the past and what the ultimate goals of individuals were. And those questions are extremely important. So in short, no matter how much we know, No matter the available evidence, when writing beyond events that we personally experience, we are not living the facts. We are interpreting them. And so herein, the advantage of historical study goes to the objects of our study, the people themselves that we're studying, our primary sources, as it were. Uh, Historians, not just historians, everyone really, uh, must constantly struggle to reconcile what they infer and what was implied. Now the difference between inference and implication is extremely important when we're discussing communication. What is inferred is what we interpret and what was implied was that which the historical actor communicated and meant by their communication. Uh, we know uh, that implication does not always equal inference. Uh, what we say to someone may be inferred differently than we originally meant it, which can lead to all sorts of problems in our daily communication. This becomes increasingly uh, augmented when we're dealing with foreign cultures or when even when we're dealing with different generations. Because uh, one set of language among a individual among an individual or a set of people uh, can have different meanings than the audience to which that language is being communicated. So that's important to remember as we go through this. Uh, but besides this challenge, uh, the struggle of implication and inference is compounded by the reality. Of the case or the thing as it actually is. Immanuel Kant called this the Ding an sich or the thing in itself and recognized that our perspectives necessarily affect our interpretation and observation of the real reality at hand. In other words, we can observe an event and we can infer things about that event but what was actually the case in that event itself may be different. Uh, Similarly, we can describe an event uh, or imply certain things about an event, but our implication, because we are observers of the facts, our implication may not be equal to the ding an sich, or the thing in itself, or the reality at hand. So can we filter out all implications, all inferences, and deal only with the facts of the case? Uh, This is, in my opinion, a constant struggle for historians, for communicators, for politicians, uh, and in general our daily lives. Uh, Historical reality or truth uh, really does not care what is implied or what is inferred, because truth deals only with what is or what was in the case of history. So here again, the contemporary actors in our historical studies have a distinct advantage over we, the spectators. Often in history, uh, especially in the Bible, we are viewing a foreign culture We are speaking a foreign language, using a foreign currency, operating under foreign laws and customs, with a foreign mindset and worldview, and living in a foreign land. Now, even if modern Americans were to study the United States of the 1950s, that entire culture is still, indeed, foreign in the sense that laws, customs, and moral priorities have both died and generated for the majority of us today. The language or dialect of the 1950s is itself foreign. Uh, We see uh, what was verbally implied then may not be inferred correctly by Americans today. In other words, we may not infer uh, correctly what someone from the 1950s was trying to communicate. Uh, Additionally, uh, our currency is not only inflated compared to 60 years ago, but uh, it's also valued differently based on the availability and the supply of staples uh, and our prioritization of goods and services. So in the 1960s, uh, handheld electronic devices were not even a consideration, whereas today, those things may be considered vitally important to our daily operation. So in that sense, the money of the 1950s is foreign as well. Uh, Of course, our generational mindset and our worldview hardly resembles that of a half century ago. Even our land, our geography has been altered by mechanical and uh, meteorological means and is uh, scarcely comprised of the same stuff that our fathers and our grandfathers knew. Just try using a 1950s road atlas uh, to travel from New Jersey to Niagara Falls, uh, you're going to have a little bit of trouble doing that. Now this does not mean that the United States of the 1950s in this case, or any historical historical study is completely incomprehensible. Uh, But what it does mean is that we must be careful to understand that history is not simply a study of events in the past, but it is a study of an entirely foreign people of the past. And the further we are removed in time from that people, the greater care we must take to recognize as we insert our minds into their lives that we are aliens in their world. And for the most part, we've never lived in their world. Therefore, our perspective or our inferences are necessarily biased based on our contemporary lens or how we view the people of the past. Now, it may be possible that uh, someone might gain an understanding uh, of a foreign people without ever having lived there uh, so acutely that he or she could visit for the first time undetected as a foreigner in that land. Uh, It's possible, but I don't think that's very plausible. And even if someone could, they would still carry with them those biases and prejudices of his or her contemporary era. Uh, My favorite historian, uh, Will Durant, perhaps said it best when he said, The historian always oversimplifies and hastily selects a manageable minority of facts and faces out a crowd of souls and events whose multitudinous complexity he can never quite embrace comprehend so only those people that we study could have implied the reality of their surroundings we as contemporary people can never impute upon them an implication we can only infer now this is not just true of people it's also true even in archaeology we unearth graves and buildings and infer cultural attributes based on the evidence uncovered. But this evidence, uh, really, at the the end of the day, can do nothing more than give us an inductive theory, uh, which is, at best, a bevy of white swans. And if you don't know uh, what the white swans uh, fallacy is, it is the inductive theory that uh, made the case that all swans are white based on the overwhelming evidence uh, uh, to affirm that uh, reality. Uh, But all it took was a single black swan found in Australia to disprove uh, that inductive theory that all swans are white. It only takes one singular event to disprove an inductive theory. And so uh, studying the events of the past and our inference of those events of the past leads us to conclude based on inductive theory. Uh, We must conclude, then, that history is interpretive. And if history is interpretive, then the interpreters can certainly get it wrong. Uh, Robert C. Williams, in his uh, book The Historian's Toolbox, uh, said this, Of course, truth about the past remains elusive and approximate, We can never be certain that we have understood uh, or we have inferred the past correctly. Um, Nevertheless, uh, moving on, there are uh, many branches of history but what we'll be most concerned with, what I'm most concerned with in my own studies, uh, especially as it pertains to this, is the branch of intellectual history. Now intellectual history does not mean uh, the study of smart people, Uh, it, it simply means that Uh, We are studying the mindset or the worldview, the philosophy, the theology, uh, and the mental products of the intellect of this time period, in this case, the first century New Testament Christian church. The events themselves are important, uh, but what intellectual history strives to uh, show is what contributed to those events, what was the mindset behind the events. There's another aspect of history that uh, I have to make mention of here, and that is the field of historiography, which is very important. Historiography is that science which dictates the methods of the historian. It's closely linked to the understanding of the intellect of the time, and it ultimately determines which sources a historian is to accept, which sources to reject, and how to interpret those sources. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the hermeneutics for historians. This is important because there, there have been changes in historiography. There have been major movements in historiography throughout our known history of Western civilization. In uh, classical Greece and ancient Rome, uh, there was a definite leaning toward the idea of uh, what is a Greek word called anacyclosis, or a view that history goes in cycles? This was especially true of politics, but it also uh, was true of other facets of culture and history as well. And classical historiography and this theory of anacyclosis, as we'll see in the coming weeks, played an extremely important role in the development of the theater of the New Testament. But uh, because of uh, Christianity, in large part due to the expansion of Christ- Christendom, uh, this theory of history was replaced by a historiography of inevitable progress toward perfection, or a progressive history. And I don't mean progressive uh, with the the modern connotations that term carries with it uh, politically, but rather that history was leading toward, a final state or a final goal uh, that was controlled. Again, this is heavily influenced by the expansion of Christendom. Uh, However, recently, uh, this theory of history was followed by a historiography that viewed events invariably as a struggle between the haves and the have-nots. This is considered uh, a materialistic historiography, which uh, proponents of this theory were, uh, of course, Karl Marx, and others of his time. But more recently, I think that we've seen uh, or we are seeing a historiography of relativism and existentialism, both of which, uh, in the final analysis, declare that the implications of the past are meaningless and only what we infer from them, how history makes us feel, is what really matters. And we're content to view the events of the past through the lens of the present and neglect to acknowledge that moral priorities, uh, cultures, technology, ideas were different then. And But nevertheless, uh, we can judge history based on how it makes us feel in our own culture. That is a Uh, Personally, that is a uh, historiography that I detest, uh, and I think you will see that as we continue through this study and explore some of the critics of of the Bible, of the events of the New Testament, and of Christianity itself. So more and more, or at least in the United States, history is being interpreted through a secular lens that treats the mindset, uh, especially the Christian mindset, of the past as as an infantile mindset. Uh, it places the, uh, the hic et nunc, uh, what Jean-Paul Sartre called it, or the here and now. It places the here and now as an authoritative judge over the priorities of the past, and it elevates the desires of mankind above the creator of mankind in almost every respect. And God in the minds of men has been disenthroned and succeeded by his creation. Uh, Noam Chomsky illustrates this rather well uh, by calling God himself a creature and therefore imposes the judgment of man upon him, uh, describing the events of the flood, uh, saying that the God of the Bible was ready to destroy every living creature on earth because some humans irritated him. Uh, He goes on, that's the story of Noah. I mean, that's beyond genocide. You don't know how to describe this creature. Somebody offended him, and he was going to destroy every living being on earth. And then he was talked into allowing two of each species to stay alive. That's supposed to be gentle and wonderful. Uh, This is the attitude of, of our more prominent philosophers today. So, we've seen in modern historiography that uh, the, uh, the, so the, the, the secular axe has been laid at the, true, at the root of the religious tree. And our culture seems to be becoming not just more non-Christian, but really uh, more anti-Christian. For 200 years, 200 or more years, historians, philosophers, and uh, even theologians uh, have uh, aimed their guns at the heart of Orthodox Christianity. They have in every regard attempted to destroy first the foundations of Christianity, knowing the rest will crumble after without any effort of their own. Uh, in some evidentiary respects, by some evidence, they've they've been successful. Uh, we see more and more self-proclaimed Christian churches denying even the divinity of Christ and the authority of Scripture. And uh, they are taking a more existential stance or an existential approach that God is more concerned with how we fit into our culture than heralding his perfect, holy, and transcendent law. But in other respects, uh, their, their offense, the offense of these secular theologians, philosophers, and historians uh, has created an army or uh, a phalanx of defenders of the Christian faith who have guarded heroically Uh, in my opinion, the millennial citadels of orthodoxy, while the complacent in the world were captured unawares, Um, while more and more Christians are rejecting uh, the emotional fickleness of mainstream evangelicalism. Uh, I think this is true in both the Protestant and Catholic churches, and they are longing for a well-reasoned, consistent, and systematic philosophy, which is totally opposed to existentialism, the systematic philosophy through which they might know the uncaused cause or the God of the universe. Uh, among these theological giants, uh, we've found the likes of R.C. Sproul, Greg Bonson, B.B. Warfield, John MacArthur, uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, Philip Schaff, A.W. Pink, many, many, many others uh, that have all Uh, taken great pains to respond to the criticisms of the day and to show that the orthodox view of Christianity not only holds up, but is more consistent than these opposing worldviews. As orthodox Christians, uh, we do not simply rely on interpretive history as the sole window into our past. Rather, I I think we're in a unique situation where wherein we claim at our disposal an infallible and inerrant history that is so objective and true that to, that to deny its authority is to wander into the realm of the absurd. We as Orthodox Christians claim that truth is Christ, and that Christ is truth, and that nothing on either side of the is in both formula. Is learned from the other. In other words, Jesus equals truth. We claim the statement, Jesus is truth, is an analytical statement akin to the mathematical equation 1 equals 0 plus 1 or 2 equals 1 plus 1. Nothing is learned from one side or the other about the other. We also claim that Christ is the Logos or the word, and therefore that the words and the mind of Christ are also truth. Uh, We also claim that Christ is God, again, equal with God, and that God has in times past inspired men to engrave his holy word. And finally, we claim that the statement God exists is not only an analytical truth, but that this truth may be ascertained a priori, or without prior knowledge. So, in short, we claim at our disposal what is called, as opposed to interpretive history, a normative history, uh, which is uh, how John Gerstner described it. Uh, this normative history is perfect in its implication. And where that which is implied is absolutely equal to the historical reality Or, remember, what Immanuel Kant called the ding-an-sich. It is the standard by which all subsequent truth must be judged. While with other historical sources we can't even be sure their implication corresponds with historical truth, uh, we do not accept that statement about the Bible. We claim that what is implied in the Bible is that which corresponds with historical truth, or historical reality. Now, this does not mean that in our inferences uh, we are incapable of getting it wrong. Uh, We certainly are capable of inferring that truth incorrectly and making mistakes in our interpretation of what is implied in the Bible, but what a normative history claims is that What is implied in the Bible, what is implied by the Word of God, is in itself completely true and completely correspondent with the thing in itself. But just because we claim to have such an objective standard uh, does not mean that standard actually is. Uh, Such a claim is equal in its loftiness as it is for the burden of its defense. Uh, making that claim requires that we demonstrate the veracity of it. We 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 must demonstrate the truth claim, the truth of the claim, that Jesus is truth, and that Scripture is truth, and that God exists. It requires that we demonstrate uh, the fiduciary properties of Scripture holding the perfect exhalations of divine truth in its trust. It requires that uh, we reason backwards from our dogma to uh, make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. So, uh, what are the premises of this history of the New Testament Christian Church and where do we begin? Um, I always start, I, I think, or I, at least in my mind, I always begin by affirming that God is. Not only that he is, but that he is necessarily. God cannot not be. And the uh, the other part of that is we are not God. We are not the supreme being. We are not the ultimate authority. That property belongs only to the God that necessarily is. Um, Now, I'd I'd love to go into a philosophical exposition uh, of the arguments for the existence of God. There are many out there and they are uh, some of them quite sophisticated. Uh, The cosmological argument, the transcendental argument, the teleological argument, the argument from design, uh, and probably my favorite is the ontological argument. Uh, But I think for our purposes at this point and for the sake of time, it is just as valuable to state that God is necessary because of the impossibility of the contrary. God can't not be, otherwise nothing would be. And that is a property of definition. It is not a property of imposition. In other words, we're not uh, imposing that property on a being we call God. We are defining that being uh, through which nothing else could be. We are defining that being as God, uh, we are creatures that or that which has been created, and as such, we have absolutely no business imposing our priorities upon the supreme authority over all creation, and we have no business demanding that He submit to us. Again, we are not God, we are creatures to the ultimate creator. Uh, this is an important premise to make, and we will explore it a little bit more. Uh, further in future weeks, Um, but uh, well, because so many arguments against Christianity today either deny the reality of God or they change God into someone who can be manipulated by uh, a more powerful us or a more powerful we. So, uh, we'll accept that for now. But our, our, our next statement, our next proposition is that we will also start by affirming the basic reliability of Scripture as a historical document. Now, despite a, a couple of centuries of highly, highly aggressive textual criticism, uh, really not, not suffered by any other historical text, uh, every discovery uh, seems to affirm the orthodoxy that the New Testament was written by Eyewitnesses or by first hand experiencers of the events themselves. Uh, we will go deeper into these discoveries throughout this study, uh, but these experiences, being confirmed by multiple sources, uh, demonstrate unequivocal miracles such as the raising of Lazarus, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Pentecost, and many more. These are miracles in the sense that they plainly violate what we understand as the laws of physics, and they cannot be repeated in a laboratory. Yet, uh, we have multiple eyewitnesses to these events whose, uh, whose very credibility was at stake among a skeptical people, and they could have easily been disproven by countering testimony. Uh, we also have sources outside the Bible, Christian, Jewish, and pagan, uh, that also confirm uh, the events of the New Testament. So, what this means is that uh, the basic reliability of Scripture and its miracles, uh, that internal testimony contained therein, definitive, definitively points to the divinity of Christ, who in turn certainly testified to the inspiration of the Old Testament and who commissioned apostles to carry on his inspired work. So, uh, we begin again at the beginning, that God is, and he has established his church from the beginning, on the sixth day of creation. That first human being made in the image of God and who for a time entered into the divine court to commune with absolute holiness was the first member of the church. And while for the church historian it is always tempting to trace the roots of the modern church back to the very beginning or to Adam, uh, for most of this study we will be concentrating on the New Testament Christian church as it was manifested by the coming of the Messiah and the going of his disciples and apostles. Uh, We will accept the premise up front that God is, and throughout the remainder of this course we will labor thoroughly to demonstrate the veracity of Christ, his apostles, and the inspiration of the New Testament.